This is Anthony Pascal. And this is Lori Elster. And this is the All Access Star Trek podcast, last episode of 2023. So welcome to that, everybody. Happy New Year, almost. Yes, happy almost New Year. Um, today on the podcast, we have a very fun interview with John Billingsley, who's going to talk about Trek Talks and Enterprise and Flocks and all kinds of fun stuff. Uh, we've got some news to discuss first. We're going to start with one of my favorite topics. <laughs> A deep dive into the business of Paramount Global. Actually, it's not that deep, but they, they have been having merger talks with Warner Brothers Discovery. Yeah. So last week or two weeks ago, I guess, was our last podcast and Brian came on. We talked about how Sherry Redstone, who owns the controlling shares of Paramount, was having talks with some individuals about selling her controlling stake. Since then, this kind of big news came out that she and the CEO of Paramount are talking to Warner Brothers about a merger, Warner Brothers Discovery. You know, and it is serious. I mean, they have hired bankers. You know, this is definitely something being seriously considered. And there's been a very interesting reaction from, you know, Wall Street, Hollywood, and Washington, actually, which is an important element. What's the Washington element? Any merger of two, because this would be two top five studios, right? Um, you know, would be a regulatory issue. Now, there, you know, Warner Brothers doesn't have the issue that, say, Comcast would, because Comcast owns NBC. You know, so you can't have one company owning CBS and NBC, but they both own big movie and television production studios. There would be layoffs. It would be more consolidation. Um, this would be in 2024, which is an election year. The current DOJ just doesn't seem to be a big fan of this kind of stuff, you know. And and so there's been some commentary from people in Congress that you know they they don't like this idea because it just doesn't look like a pro consumer, pro worker idea. Yeah, I don't like it either for the same reasons. I don't usually agree with those people, but here we go. And Wall Street has not been favorable either, especially because basically Warner Brothers is not in a very strong position. They have a lot of debt. Paramount has a lot of debt. If they do it with a cash buyout, it would just create a company with huge amount of debt. So which Wall Street doesn't like, especially now. Um there are ways to do it like with a stock trade or do it the other way, which is to take over Sherry's shares. But then the investors don't like that because it doesn't really help the stock price. You know, and I know we're getting into the weeds, but this is important stuff because Wall Street doesn't like the deal because it doesn't look good for the stock. And there's just a lot of skepticism out there. And even in Hollywood, people are saying consolidation may not be the answer to the problems of these two companies, at least at a corporate level. Although some analysts say maybe they, you know, there's still something could be done. Like you don't need to merge the companies to put Max and Paramount Plus together as a bundle, for example, which Paramount is already talking to Apple about doing that. This may be kind of the new thing of these these bundles of streaming services being sold together as a, at a discount, but it wouldn't be one service. But I mean, because, you know, Netflix won the streaming wars. They came in as a winner and they're still the winner. And really, yeah. they're, they're the only winner. They're also the best at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason they're the winner, not just because they came in first, but they definitely were able to recognize the way the industry was going sooner and do something about it. And they were innovators. Prime is also a winner, 
but you know, again, their product is not really 100% about video because it's still, you know, you get free shipping and all sorts of stuff with no, it. No, and that's a game changer for, I mean, I had Prime before there was Prime Video because yeah. I needed the, the free shipping. And Disney Hulu are eventually going to become one thing that's already starting to happen. And they're really the only studio you could consider a winner, except that they still haven't made money off streaming either. Right. <laughs> Everyone else, Paramount, Comcast with Peacock, Warner Brothers Discovery with Max, and then you know Apple and everyone else is just struggling to make money off of it. You know, maybe all of the second tier or whatever lower tier companies including paramount will group up and try to create something that competes that's a possibility i think but getting back to the deal like the previous thing we're talking about is paramount would basically be sold as pieces and paramount plus would possibly be just shut down and all the shows would have to be sold to other services or not the max deal would probably if they did actually merge with Warner Brothers Discovery, they'd probably just merge the streaming services, which sounds like a good deal for Star Trek, except that there's a guy named David Zasloff who runs Warner Brothers Discovery. And um, he does not have a good reputation for supporting (laughs) for supporting his own products. (laughs) Right. I mean, he started the trend of pulling product off of Max to for tax breaks something that eventually happened for, to Prodigy, but that, you know, that he pioneered that um, there's a lot of content that's been removed. If you notice a lot of Warner brothers content is now an HBO content is now showing up on Netflix, ironically. Right. So they're getting back into that, which is fine. But pulling shows before they air or just pulling them off when people, you know, for tax breaks is, is just, from to my mind, bad news for the creative community. Oh, absolutely! You know he, he is not one any fans of, amongst the no. creative community at all. The, the bottom line is, Paramount is in play. I'm not. You know, the, some people are saying maybe Comcast will take a look uh, either at Warner Brothers Discovery or at Paramount. When you look at the scale of these companies, Paramount is very small when you compare it to Disney or Comcast, you know, these are much, much bigger companies in total. And so someone is going to buy Paramount or Paramount's going to be sold as pieces within the next two years. And that's going to have a big impact on Star Trek. We just don't know what that's going to be. Right. And things are already sort of uncertain, I think, anyway. Like, it's definitely a time of flux for Star Trek as a franchise. I mean, if I were them, there are moves they could make, uh, you know, sell, you know, they could sell certain assets like BET. They got to get their debt under control. They could make Paramount Plus slightly uh, profitable within a year or two. They could buy some smaller studios like Lionsgate and, you know, maybe they could eke it out. Um, But I, I still think it's more likely that some kind of sale or merger happens. Right. You know, we'll be keeping an eye on this, but no big deals are going to happen during an election year because of it's just bad politics. But uh, I I think in 2025, something's going to happen. But that those things would have to start in 2024. Right. 
All right. Well, let's move on to our next story, which actually has to do with the Quentin Tarantino Star Trek movie that never happened. So Mark L. Smith was the writer who was hired to write the script. It was Quentin Tarantino's idea he was going to direct it. The whole thing ended when Tarantino stepped away in 2019. But there was an interview with Mark Smith talking about some other project. And he was asked about it. And he said that the reason that Quentin Tarantino stepped away was because he got very hung up on the number of movies that he had always said he was going to direct. So he always said, I'm going to direct 10 and that's it. And then he just got very hung up on the idea of, is my final movie going to be a Star Trek movie? And then he couldn't wrap his head around it. Yeah, I mean, he was working on his ninth movie at the time. It's kind of like, well, why did you even start this? Like, did you didn't it occur to you? Like, well, you know, he set this this ten number himself. Right again, right. He set it himself, so he could have said or eleven. Right, but why didn't he go to JJ and pitch him this movie? If because Paramount was never going to make this movie unless Tarantino was directing it. That was the whole angle. Right. I don't know. I mean, I I've always said I'd love to see this movie. As long as it wasn't the franchise movie, like there's going to be a tentpole franchise Star Trek movie, uh, you know, it's either a new Kelvin movie or whatever, but this could be like a side movie, kind of like Joker was for DC. It's not part of the kind of continuity. It's just some, some kind of other world where weird Tarantino stuff happens. And I think that would have been fun. Well, Maybe. some of what Mark Smith said was he said that Quentin Tarantino's vision was to go hard. He called it Pulp Fiction in Space. He said there would be violence and language um, and stuff we've known for a while, which is, would have in included Kirk and gangsters. But I would love to see the script because I'm so curious. But I, I got to say, like, I'm glad this is not happening. Purely just from an interest's point of view like oh that's interesting and quirky but i think in terms of like you're right it sort of can't be part of the franchise and if you're talking about bringing in an audience like oh yes a lot of people who don't go to star trek movies would absolutely go to a quentin tarantino star trek movie yeah but would those people go to the next star trek movie i don't think so maybe but the, it because does that... he's not going to hook them in with what star trek is i mean when you say oh lots of violence and like like I mean, language I'm sort of indifferent to, but but if it's very violent and it's Pulp Fiction in space, like that's not really what Star Trek is. Well, not everything Tarantino does is nihilistic, and they're they're, they're no. I loved his last movie, like I absolutely loved it. Yeah, Once Upon he, a Time in Hollywood, it, fantastic film. Yeah, you could have good messages of hope, and you know, but there's just going to be there would be violence in the movie too. And uh, I think Star Trek could survive R-rated. I mean, like Logan, if you look at the Marvel Universe with Patrick Stewart was obviously in that, was R-rated. The Deadpool movies are all obviously R-rated, but that's a different thing. So Right, but I don't think you're talking about a 50-year-old franchise. Well, those are pretty old franchises. Well, in well. no, but in terms of like on screen. I mean, I'm not talking about like comics and history like that. But those, you know, it's it is very different to me and it's... Like if and because Tarantino violence is quite extreme, you know, it's not like, oh, there's going to be a fight. It's like there's going to be prolonged close ups of bloody, horrible. Things. I, I have a feeling in the end and certainly the studio, it would have been even if it was R and hard R, I, I, st I still think they would have found a way to try to not go as far as that. But 
you know, when you look at these other franchises like DC and Marvel, where they're producing multiple films, because when this thing was happening, they were also making what was at that time a different Star Trek four with Chris Pine. So it wasn't the kind of big thrust movie. It was a side project. It was going to probably have a smaller budget. So its goal wasn't to bring in new fans. And like you were saying, his goal was to be a Quentin Tarantino Star Trek project, which I think is fine as long as the franchise flagship is also happening. Yeah, I just, I guess for me, it's like that, what we've heard about it. Again, I want to read that script. I think Quentin Tarantino is very brilliant. And I'd be very curious to read that script. But none of what Mark L. Smith said makes me think, oh, I wish they made that movie. I'm, it only makes me think I'm glad they didn't. I just want them to make a movie. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know, it, it's been, you know, we're going into year eight. Since the last movie, amazingly. Wow. I'm not saying I'll take anything, but I would right. like something. Supposedly, there's, you know, something cooking. Of course, you know, a change of ownership and management at Paramount could only put that into question. But, you know, the studio has to still crank out movies. That's the whole point. If someone buys the, them, right. they want, you know. <laughs> so Paramount will release a number of films every year. And uh, I still think that. They're not going to go more than 10 years without a Star Trek movie. I just can't imagine that. Well, we're getting closer every day. So we'll yeah. see what happens. Well, next next year's, I mean, because you kind of got to get the, the ball rolling next year if you want to make it by the 60th anniversary, right? Right. I mean, it depends on how far they are already. But if you were to start brand new, like new director, new writer, new everything, then they'd have to start that whole new process going next year. I would just love to read all the scripts of all the different ideas and just see what the hell's been going on. Um, there's all sorts of Star Trek scripts rattling around uh, <laughs> par- Paramount. All right, let's move on to actual real things that are definitely happening. How about that? There is a Star Trek movie going into production. I, I, I we, we What's sounded a, <laughs> a movie event, a television movie event. Is that what it's called? Yeah, I forget a streaming event or it's it's a TV movie. <laughs> streaming event sounds medical. <laughs> you know, what's funny is it's all what's old is new again. Back in the seventies, you know, there was TV movies were big. William Shatner yes. was in ha- half of them. TV movies, I think, are great. And so the Michelle Yeoh Section Thirty One is a TV movie. I mean, we've reported that it's happening now. Michelle Yeoh herself has said it's happening, and not only is it happening, she's already been in Toronto. Yep. For, I guess, prep, because they're not actually shooting till. Yeah, January. she said, we're definitely prepping. We're going full steam ahead. And she seems excited about it. And f- filming starts in January. It'll take about six weeks. And we still don't know anything else about it, really. I mean, they've got to have cast people by now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it can't be a one-woman show. So I don't know why they're holding that back Shazad Latif would be newsy because he's you know known to people within the franchise last time he talked about it he said I don't know what's going on right Gilfoyle was obviously in her last episode who played Carl but unless they're bringing in elements from like Strange New Worlds so maybe Anson Mount is in it or stuff like that but I don't see how that's possible because they're shooting Strange New Worlds literally at the same time I mean, maybe they do one, you know, they could do one day of shooting. Right. But he couldn't do a lot because he's really busy with yeah, starring they, in his other show. Yeah. <laughs> but Strange New World's people or maybe Discovery people 
could, you know, there's others that could be popping in. Sure. But I'm hoping they bring in some just good, strong, interesting actors, you know, that right. And people Star that were that right. And people that were interested in following if they, st- if they decide this is worth developing further, because this could also just be a way to test the waters for some kind of show. Yeah. I mean, this started as a show. This was, yeah. you know, the first version of this was a pilot essentially. So the character, there are ca- going to be new characters in this that could have been, and possibly could still be, recurring new you know new characters yeah join her on her adventures whatever her adventures are so i'm glad this is happening and maybe we will see that next year we'll see it before the 60th anniversary we just don't know when (laughs) (laughs) maybe at the end of the year yeah that's what i'm thinking maybe by this time next year we'll be reviewing star trek colon section 31 colon (laughs) <laughs> Giorgio's Revenge. Leave my colon out of it. Yeah, first we have <laughs> streaming events and colons. I don't know. <laughs> All right, well, let's go uh, cleaner and G-rated and talk about Prodigy. Uh, yes, <laughs> it's sweet and delightful and family-friendly. Um, Prodigy is back. Season one is back on Christmas Day on Netflix, the aforementioned winner of the streaming wars. I've already uh, rewatched the whole thing. That's amazing. <laughs> I felt like I had, I mean, I had it, you know, while I was working during the day and doing my thing, but it's, uh, it really is such a powerful show. I think about how many times I've seen each episode, given that we reviewed it on the podcast and that I still was emotionally moved, laughed out loud, stopped what I was doing just to stare, was struck by how gorgeous it is. Like all the same reactions, no matter how many times I watch it. And already it's doing really well on Netflix. It's showing up on top 10 lists around the world since it premiered, like on Netflix's top 10 kids lists, I believe. Yeah, which I I mean, I think, or at least I hope that because Netflix is a data-driven company that those are tracking kids profiles because you know with netflix you you have to create a profile and you create a kids profile so you see the kids top 10 list within the kids profile section so although adults can be watching with their kids one would hope that this is a ranking of kids profiles so it's doing well in the english-speaking countries which makes sense the uk australia the us new zealand which never got the show because Paramount Plus isn't even in New Zealand. Also, German-speaking countries, because those have always been popular with Star Trek, but also Italy and France, you know, so which is unusual for Star Trek. Um, So this is good news. This may may mean that it's reaching that audience it was always meant to reach. Yeah. Yeah, Um, this could be a better home for it. All of this success which it looks like it is, will hopefully help lead to a season three. I mean, first we have to get season two out there so that we can see it. And we still don't know when that's going up. But, you know, the producers are have not given up on season three and, and, and are, I wouldn't say optimistic, but hopeful perhaps is a better word. And they certainly have plans and stories to take them, they said, through seven seasons. Yeah, the Hagemans, and, and they've talked about wanting to do a movie, so that yeah, absolutely. If this does well on Netflix, then they could buy more seasons. The show has not been canceled. It's strange. It was removed, but it was never canceled. Yeah, it is very, <laughs> very strange to be removed but not canceled. 
because work continued on season two and no decision has been made on season three. Work is now complete on season two. So if Netflix were to decide for season three, they'd have to get the gang back together again and all that. Um, But I don't think that would be too bad. The Hagemans and others are certainly motivated to get back to it. No, and it's almost there. I mean, so many shows now have these insane long breaks between seasons. So it's certainly not unheard of. The Hagemans did some press ahead of the relaunch. They teased that they're going to stop the teasing on Chakotay. We're finally going to see Chakotay and Janeway. You know, are they going to kiss? Who knows? But they're going to get back. We're going to at least see them together. Again. I'm not a shipper. I'm not a JC shipper. I never have been. I, I kind of no. don't get it. Not that I was a fan of any of her weird romances on the show. Yeah, she didn't. <laughs> Well, I liked holographic bartender guy was sort of fun, but yeah, they definitely, I mean, it was, there was a lot going on in the show and moments that looked like it. I understand why people thought this was going on, but it was never, I always thought, I don't know, captain and first officer seems kind of weird and temperamentally, I didn't think they were such a good match. But she obviously has a deep emotional bond with, with him and you know, wants to save him. And we'll, we'll see that next season. I just think it's funny that the showrunners are joking about the shipping because it's, I guess, a big part of fandom and they want to at least acknowledge that. Yes. Um, I, I don't think, even though they've joked about it, I don't see that happening. No. And also their audience doesn't care. Exactly. It's, about a kid's, it. it's a kid the show. The kids are waiting to see if they're going to smooch. The kids don't know that there's any history of it. I don't think all the kids have watched Voyager yet. I mean, they've already started the Dal, you know, bromance with Gwyn. So that's enough for that show. Yeah. We don't need to turn it into a soap opera. Another thing they said, because we're obviously getting Picardo uh, as the doctor and, you know, Chicote as we were saying, but they said that there's bigger surprises in season two that have nothing to do with Voyager that they don't, even though there seems to be a lot of this Voyager stuff that the show isn't Voyager season eight. Right. Um, Which it never was. No, but it's, it's more Voyager than anything else. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. But I guess what they, they're implying there is that we're going to see some legacy people from, you know, next gen or DS nine or something like that. I mean, we've already seen that. Obviously. I was going to say we've had some of that already. So and there, I like their balance of it. They seem to have a good take on 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 not going overboard. And there's been TOS connections, obviously. Yep. I mean, no, they've had a whole bunch of characters from everything, <laughs> lest we forget <laughs> yeah. Kobayashi. Yes. And I, I can't wait to see what weirdness Aaron has cooked up for season two and and for season yeah. three. Yeah. <laughs> No, I'm um, only I'm very excited about season two. I wish it was coming on soon. And uh, I really very much enjoyed rewatching season one. And I'm sure I'm going to watch again. I guess that's it. You know, it's the end of the year. It's kind of slow for news. But we've got a lot to talk about with our guest who we've already talked to, John Billingsley. Yeah, I did kind of, you know, it's I'm talking to John so much on a regular basis as we do Trek Talks that for a lot of us, it was good to just have you asking a lot of the questions because <laughs> I just feel like I talk to him all the time now. But it was, it was, I think, a really fun interview. Yeah, as he's honest and frank. And so he had interesting things to say about Enterprise and maybe what he thinks about coming back. So let's roll the tape. <laughs> Roll it! 
Welcome to the podcast, John Billingsley, obviously star of Star Trek Enterprise, or one of the stars. No, no, no. I like the way you started. You don't have to go back <laughs> star, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> number, number one on the call sheet, of course, uh, for Star Trek Enterprise, and one of the board members of the Hollywood Food Coalition, and co-host of Trek Talks 2024, coming in January. I would say fearless leader of Trek Talks 3 in 2024. <laughs> I don't know about the fearless part. I've got fears. <laughs> Anxieties. I couldn't sleep last night. What about, have I email? Wait a minute, I need to. Oh gosh, what about? Ah, producing a show. Terrifying. But you have. You put together an incredible show. It is a great roster. I think we, we got our last couple of guests in place today. I can't mention them yet. Because I have I have a little I to dot and a little T to cross, but we have a really really terrific group of folks assembled. I'm very very and I realize this is sort of forgive me uh, inside baseball, but uh, without Lori and the help that Lori has provided, this doesn't happen. It's amazing. Thank you so much. I really can't thank you enough for stepping in and being such an amazing rock through this process. Well, I stepped in because. I thought the last events that you guys produced were incredible. And hearing you talk about Hollywood Food Coalition in the middle of that is what inspired me to want to help. Not just because, well, I have skills that can be helpful when you're doing a Star Trek show. Hello. But the the purpose of it. So I think you should articulate the purpose of it because it's always what wins me over. Well, I got involved with the Hollywood Food Coalition about seven years ago, and probably people who've been following the podcast circuit are so sick of hearing this story. So bear with me. I'm trying to figure out an interesting way to tell it. My wife and I, after Trump was elected, decided we needed to respond in some way. And although I'd always been um, active in social service work, it seemed as if it was time for me to kind of put my career a bit on the back burner and do something that engaged more in my society and in my country. And my wife found this wonderful, small soup kitchen, really, called the Hollywood Food Coalition. We served, um, they served at the time around 200 or so people uh, every night of the week, a really great multi-course meal. And they were so warm and compassionate and caring with all their guests. And they embodied the spirit of volunteerism to such a fabulous extent. Everybody who walked in the door was made to feel at home immediately. You walk in and suddenly you're making a fruit salad, washing the dishes. You know everybody by name. It's music blasting and jokes and play. And that spirit was so um, encompassing that I just decided this was my new home and possibly much to their chagrin now, seven years later. And I realized fairly early on that the best skill I could bring to the table was to actually help organize um, a somewhat disparate group of people and ask a question, what do we want down the road? What would the future bring? And out of that conversation came a decision to do more for our community. So one of the things that we started doing was rescuing more and more food and sharing it with other organizations. And we now rescue about 3 million pounds of food a year. And we share it with about 150 other local and regional not-for-profits to help buttress and augment their meal programs. And for me, that concept of coalition building and the idea of trying to bring communities together to work together to identify problems that they can only solve collectively and to share resources and to understand how they could help each other was so, in a weird way, reminiscent of what Star Trek's about. 
that I kept thinking, I wonder if there's a way to kind of use this minor celebrity I have in Star Trek to help build awareness for the Food Coalition. So a couple of years ago, uh, I was on Trek Geeks, and Bill and Dan mentioned that they'd had Jonathan Frakes on, and they put together a small fundraiser for Feeding America. He said it was, Bill said it was sort of like a telethon. I said, oh, a telethon, a telethon, that sounds intriguing. How would that work if we had a lot more Star Trek guests? And they poured themselves into it with full force and fervor. We found a lot of other people who were willing to help uh, we now have a producing team of around 15 folks. We've now done two shows. We've had, oh gosh, probably 100-ish guests. And we've made um, over 200, close to $250,000. And this is all done online. This year feels special because the last big Star Trek convention, you know, no one was using the word Star Trek or oh. talking about Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Euphemisms are gone now. The lineup you have is very close to, you know, the kind of big lineup we get at, at in Las Vegas. And this time it's for a great cause. It's online. Um, but it's kind of like a, a, a Star Trek convention in a way. Yeah. And, and one of the cool things, uh, ancillary things, but a cool thing that uh, I started hearing from folks a couple of years ago, somebody said, somebody wrote a very nice note and said, you know, I've never been able to afford to go to a convention. And I never thought I'd ever get to go to a convention. I'd read about them. And it always sounded so cool. And I feel like I was able to go to a convention and it, and I didn't have to wear pants. I threw that last part in because that is something <laughs> that means, it means something to me. That's always the thing that for me, I kind of echo because you get to go to a convention in the, in the comfort of your own home. And if you want to turn it into a party, you can invite your pals and you can throw a little mini convention in your own house. I really love the intimacy of it and the idea that you can come and go. You don't have to sit there for the full eight hours, although a lot of people do. And those will be panels you miss will be available online. It's not like yeah. you have to, you know, if you if you miss a great thing, it's over. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, the first two years, you can watch them on YouTube. I do encourage people when they watch to remember that this was a benefit to raise money for the Hollywood Food Coalition. So you can still make a contribution. I also encourage people to know that even if, they're watching and they don't have a lot of dough, that's fine. But maybe they want to make up for the fact they may not be contributing themselves by sharing the story on social media. If people can pull friends and pals to the table, that helps us a lot. One of the things we're really trying to discover is what, um, what the missing audience is. How big an audience can we possibly get? Because I think the jury's still out. This has been a a lovely, wonderful, plucky band of uh, armchair warriors trying to figure out how to, you know, hello, we're doing a show. And I think we've still got a ways to go to learn how to do that effectively. Um, I'm hoping this year we'll have a bigger audience than last year and next year we'll have a bigger audience than, than this year, etc. I think we should talk about some of the guests and panels, whatever we are. I mean, John, Billingsley's, John Billingsley's coming. I mean, I... I, I, I yeah. Um, let's talk about some of the good guests. So you guys help because uh, they're going to be right at hand for you. The Hageman brothers are coming. Jonathan Frakes, Brent Spiner, Gates McFadden. Talk about some of the writers, Lori. Well, the panel I'm I think I'm most excited about is the Tuvix panel. Fabulous. Because we have Ethan Phillips. Tim Russ. We have Tom Wright, who played Tuvix. We have Lisa Clink, who was in the writer's room when that whole thing was being put together on Voyager. And then for for moderators, we have Robbie McNeil and Garrett Wong. 
Yeah, Terry Metalis is going to be here. We've got a panel devoted to uh, women in the sciences. We've got a panel devoted to the legacy of Nichelle Nichols with Michelle Hurd. We've got a wonderful panel about the uh, the crossover, the famous crossover episode between Strange New Worlds and um, Lower Decks with Tawny Newsom and uh, Bill... Walcoff and Catherine Lynn. Thank you. And Jonathan Frakes, who directed it. And yes. I, I hear somebody familiar will be hosting, will be moderating that one. Indeed. Indeed. Hello. <laughs> Indeed. I can't wait to see you uh, try to not fangirl out for an hour with those guys. Yeah, I know. Hey, I've done it before. I can do it again. <laughs> it's really been exciting, the um, the nature of the way the community over the last couple of years has come out to support not just this, but the general, I think, an, an overarching effort to try and build awareness for how we all can do more in our communities. One of the things that's emerged out of this effort is a podcast called Trektivism, which our wonderful colleagues, um, Heather Barker and Matthew Simone have launched. And this is an attempt to tell fans stories, the cool things that they're doing, the cool um, ventures that they are undertaking to give back. I am really moved and touched by how many of the storytellers in Star Trek, how many of the podcasters, how many of the writers have been gracious enough to get to come on and uh, babble for sometimes seemingly hours at a time. Um, <laughs> I, 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 it feels sometimes to me like, you know, it's like, you guys, don't you have to go to dinner or a show or do something? Because you just let me keep gabbing and gabbing and gabbing. Cut me off. If I'm watching this and or you know fans are watching this which will be on multiple YouTube channels including Trek Movies YouTube channel you know how will they be able to participate what what can people do who are watching live Yes there's a live chat so YouTube has a live chat so that will be ongoing there are going to be giveaways for people who are donating and we'll be announcing some names there with prizes and then people can definitely have their own community conversation going on at the same time and we are going to do an article on Trek movie early in the week before Trek Talks goes up, happens. And we are going to put up as much of the lineup as we're allowed to put there. But if people want to come and put questions in the comments there, mm -hmm. we can share those questions with moderators so that if there's a really good question we want to throw in there, we will. And we can credit the person who, who offered it. I want to ask a little bit about how things have changed uh, for the Hollywood Food Coalition in the last year you know, we went through the strikes, had a big impact on the economy in Los Angeles. Have you seen, you know, any kind of spike in the need or in homelessness that, you know, has driven um, the importance of the Hollywood Food Coalition in the last year? Well, on a macro level, I'll say this, in my opinion, and I don't mean to get excessively political, but over the last 55 or 60 years, there has been a, um, a turn away from a robust federally supported social services safety net. And it plays out at its most um, brutal in big cities and in big cities with, with large immigrant populations. Los Angeles is, um, is possibly the most expensive city in the country. It's a city where you have to spend almost one third to one half of the money you make paying rent. So any, any downturn, there's, there's always great need in cities. We've definitely seen, Huge explosion in the homeless population all across the country. 
in the last few years. Um, some of it due to COVID, some of it due to the ending of rent relief. It, it breaks my heart that I have to do this, <laughs> that we have to do this, that we as citizens have to figure out ways to patch together a tattered social safety net. I, I'm a great believer that it is part of the social contract that we've entered into with the federal government should assume a great deal of responsibility for making sure that people don't fall into the gutter. We don't really do that as well in this country as we might have once upon a time. Um, it, we serve more people now than we have in years. We serve as many as 350 people a night. It's not just people who are experiencing homelessness. It's people who can't make, uh, you know, make do with their salary. People who are living in their cars, um, college students who can afford to go to school but can't afford to have a place to live. There is, by some calculation, one out of five American kids is food insecure. When they wake up in the morning, they're not sure, not necessarily if they're going to eat, but when they're going to eat, what they're going to eat, how much they're going to eat, will they be able to eat in a comfortable environment. It, we're the richest country in the history of the world, and we don't take care of our own people. So uh, the need is huge. So you were talking about getting the word out to a larger audience. You've been doing a bit of a press tour. Um, <laughs> no. I, I, <laughs> I'm always I mean, wearing it, the same yellow sweater, I'm beginning to realize. <laughs> I, I This is my, my – I, I, everywhere I go, I realize, oh, my gosh. I'm you dressed up for uh, at local LA TV. I did. I wanted to wear a fancy jacket and everything. What has that been like? Are you using Star Trek as the angle to, you know, to get on, you know, uh, obviously Scott Mance is a Trekkie on Channel 5, but has that been help? Do you find that helpful? Scott, Star Trek is always the angle because I'm mostly appearing on Star Trek centric and Star Trek related podcasts. The, the mainstream press has not, you know, the New York Times is not calling. I, I, I don't know what's wrong with them. I'm here. I'm waiting <laughs> by the phone. Call me. Um, but there is a big, it's a big world, the Star Trek world. And, and by extension, the genre world, the sci-fi world, the entertainment world, some of what interests me is the intersectionality of celebrity fandom and storytellers, guys like you. You know, I, I think there is a hunger for the fan community to feel that the accessibility of people like me, and I'm way down on the ladder, is um, rooted in something more than give me money, I'll sign an autograph. It should be rooted more in accessibility and common interest. And I, I really kind of want to keep promoting the idea that there are ways that we can all work together to help. It sounds cheesy, but do what Star Trek is all about, you know, to help mankind. This is my volunteeristic bliss, this particular organization. But for people who want to, you know, tutor kids or volunteer in prisons or clean up beaches or whatever it is that that motivates you. I love to hear people's stories about what they do. When I used to travel a lot when I was working more, and I'd go below the Mason-Dixon line, I'd sometimes find myself at a bar sitting next to some guy. I was like, whoa, <laughs> we do not agree. But I would tend to say, tell you what, let's, let's not talk about the things that, you know, we're never going to agree on. What is it that you do that gives you the biggest, like, you know, swelling of the heart? What do you feel you do in your community that makes the biggest difference? How do you kind of bring virtue into your life? So when you look in the mirror in the night, you can kind of go, I did good today. Well, what is that? I'm curious. I find that's the, that's the nature of where connectivity lies, you know, to, to kind of push away the doctrinaire and to push away that which people intentionally use to divide us and subvert us by getting us pissed off at each other and have a conversation about the opposite thing. 
And I talk about right. that a lot because that means something to me on a very personal level, you know. And I feel like that does connect to the whole theme of Star Trek, as you were saying, which is really people who are very, very different from each other coming together for the common good. Yeah, there are many reasons that this show has become a cultural touchstone. And I do think at its root, it's because for all the different iterations of Star Trek and for all the different stories that are being told, there is still a fundamental belief that Roddenberry's vision of, at, at, and in different ways, people attempt to put aside that which could, could, could rend them asunder to do something that is rooted in, in risk and growth and adventure and exploration and challenge. Um, and that's a marvelous and exciting message. Um, I, I, I'm not myself. I mean, you know, Lori, I joke about it with you. I, I'm aesthetically, I'm not, I don't tend to watch a lot of television. I, I'm nowhere near as versed in, in the, you know, I, individual episodes of the individual series. I've liked what I've seen, but what's been odd is having been in this universe, I've come to have a really deep love for people who love Star Trek. How do you feel Enterprise lives up to that Roddenberry ideal? Do you feel like it, it, it fulfilled that vision, that it expressed that vision to its generation of fans, as it were? Well, you know, and again, it, 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 there's my, there's my uh, philosophical and political take, and then there's my aesthetic take. Aesthetically, I would have probably wanted the show to be, take some more Altman-like risks. You know, the old Altman movies with the overlapping dialogue where things were messy and muddy. To me, the first show going off, the first ship going off into space, we were afraid to use the transporter. The weapons malfunctioned. You know, the first alien we met was like, you know, like beyond bizarre. They seemed to be sociopathic maniacs that drained the corpses. What the fuck are we doing? I would have liked a little bit more of the what the fuck we were doing um, to, to, to move us and to push us. Um, to me, it became a little bit too much your daddy Star Trek fairly early on as an example. I mean, I like the idea that my guy leached people that he, you know, he used bizarre practices fairly soon into the show. I was doing the standard issue. Mm, you've got cancer. Mm, I've cured it. Um, <laughs> I, but in terms of whether or not it, it, it still performed the way all Star Trek is on a certain level designed to perform. It was still about, and it still could have been about, even if it took perhaps more of an aesthetic, you know, flight in the direction I, I was hoping it would take. It still would have been about we're doing it fucking anyway. I mean, my, my right. gag is my guy. I thought he was on kind of a weird suicide mission. I mean, he'd <laughs> had a life, he'd had wives, he'd had husbands, he'd had kids. The planet was so tight and chock-a-block with people. It's like, yeah, screw it. I'll go off with these humans. They're probably going to get me killed, but you know what the hell? It'll be fun. Um, some of that quality I would have liked to have seen emerge more, more fully. And I, I think that's probably happening now a little bit more, although I'm not a student of it. My sense is from the little bit I've watched of, of some of the current uh, iterations of Star Trek discovery and then strange new worlds. I think some of that, some of that, um, some of the, maybe the madness is a little more prevalent. You know, on some Star Trek shows, we saw that like on, you know, Armin Shimmerman on Deep Space Nine, that certain characters, they tend to give a lot of the comedic stuff to. And that happened a lot with you and Phlox, obviously Picardo as well. 
you know, is that something you desired? Did you want more of the serious kind of, cause every once in a while you'd have these moral conundrums or did you prefer to have these more fun comedic bits as it were? Um, you want to, you want to have both. I mean, well, I, I think I would put it this way. You want to be a, you want to be viewed as a character that has the ability to go to comic places. It's harder to pull that off with the captains of the ship. I mean, I think there was an episode, a night in sick bay, which was one of my favorite episodes because it was sort of the odd couple. Scott and I were sharing the sick bay. He was worried about the health of his dog. He realized that I was this strange alien indeed with a 10 foot long tongue and toenails the size of rocks and et cetera, et cetera. From my point of view, the great fun from the fans point of view, it made Scott look silly in the, in some people's estimation, people felt like well, the captain is more concerned about his dog than he is about the, you know, the, what the hell? It's nice to play a character where you can be funny without it calling into question the legitimacy of the role. And I did appreciate the fact that they allowed me to kind of uh, be both, I think, a really good doctor, a caring doctor, a serious doctor, and also have um, some very interesting quirks. Some of it you kind of, you know, hope they catch. Every time I passed anything to eat, I would eat it in hopes that they would eventually get the idea that this is a guy who would just put anything in his mouth like a child. <laughs> um, you find there's a strange way of communicating with the writers without ever actually meeting with them, that somehow they're picking up on things in your performance and they're writing into it. And conversely, they're giving you things. And if you go, ah, got it, you know, they'll go, ah, good for you. You saw what we were aiming for. Picardo hid in the bushes. So anytime the writers stepped out of the room, Picardo would be there. How about I sing opera? How about I'm having an affair with seven of nine? I didn't hide <laughs> in the bushes. One, they took out the bushes after Picardo, so there was no place too high. <laughs> um, two, I didn't have Bob's, I don't know, I didn't have Bob's colossal balls. But I i did not pester or hound the writers at all. I just, you know, took what they gave me to play and did my best with it. I, I was very happy on that show, although it was, you know, certainly no surprise that it didn't last um, the handwriting was on the wall from the jump. UPN was itself dying. so And literally died after the show ended. Nobody in Hollywood was going to pitch a show to UPN. So, <laughs> right. yeah, it was, you know, I mean, it, it was really, I, I, I think I might have been the only person in the cast outside of Scott who was actually fighting to keep us alive and did a great job. I mean, four years, we really should have been canceled after a single season by any standard you know, measurement. We were down to have five people were watching by the end of the first year. A lot of shows don't even make it to four seasons now. No, no, exactly. It really, it really is a miracle. I mean, we got ninety nine episodes. The the first, the premiere episode, I think we had ten million watch. The second episode, we had two million watch. I mean, that's death in television. I've been on a number of shows, short lived shows, where you know, after the premiere episode, when you had six million. Uh, that was it. You were done. You were yanked. Or maybe they burned off the final seven. It it really is a testament to Star Trek's uh, potency and power that it managed to hang in there for four seasons when, by you know the measurements of the day, we didn't have a show. When you were going through the process in 2000 or whenever it was, weren't they also pitching you the idea of Star Trek? Like you're going to be on a Star Trek show. It's going to run seven seasons. You're going to make movies. This, this is going to change your life. Was there any of that 
pitch back from them to you? Incidentally, I mean, you know, one, the word pitch implies that that one is reluctant to take the job in the first place and they have to sell you on something. I, 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 you know, obviously like any actor in Hollywood would crawl through broken glass to be on a franchise show where, you know, you're going to be well situated for the rest of your life. It's an assumption they make. And, and we make given the history of star Trek that you're going to have seven years. Um, it was glancingly alluded to, I think Rick said something to the effect of after I got the show, it's like, well, you know, you know, will you be for the next seven years? And I definitely remember calling my wife when I got the word that I that I was I was booked, saying our life just changed. We're going to Paris. Um, that was a pretty cool moment. I was a theater actor. I didn't have a pot to piss in for many most of, most of my life. I mean, one of the reasons I do what I do, and one of the reasons I've always involved myself in social services, is because I was poor for many many years. I mean, I made under ten thousand dollars a year for many years. I was an actor, and I always believed, although I'm not a David Mamet fan these days because he's kind of become a crank, but he wrote something that has meant a lot to me. He said, if you have a fallback position, you will fall back on it. So I never had a fallback position. I was an actor, period. That's what I did. I, I did theater, and, and I never did anything else. I taught for a while. I directed, but I made a living in this ridiculously parlous field where there's no money to be made. And I did it for a long, long time. At the age of 40, I got a job that turned me overnight into a millionaire. It's a weird fucking thing. But I will never forget what it was like to not be able to, you know, to worry about my rent, to know that I couldn't walk into a bar because a bartender was going to go, hey, you never paid for, you know. I knew where which stores served free samples, always. It's like, okay, I can go to Costco for dinner tonight, and I still got that can of tuna fish. I mean, I don't make, I, I was happy. I was happy. I was making my choices, but I was on food stamps. I know what it's like to be flat ass broke. <laughs> I mean, I'd been working when I moved here in 1995. I started working in late 96. So I, I'd had some work, but I didn't have, you know, I, I didn't have still a sense that I'd turned a corner hugely. And then in addition to that, to the sort of economic aspect of joining a franchise like that, you, I know you're not a big TV guy, but you were familiar with the original series, right? Sure. Yeah. 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 I was, was six when it came on. And did you watch it? Yeah. I don't remember it very well. I watched it with my brother, um, who was seven years older than I was. And, and uh, he suffered with me to stay in the room with him. So uh, one of my fond memories of my history with my brother was watching Star Trek Friday nights, I believe. And then I watched in syndication when uh, I was, I would have been, golly, we moved up to New York by then. Probably I was in the fifth grade, sixth grade. It was on uh, Channel 11 in the afternoon. I'd come home and I'd, I'd watch Star Trek, The Little Rascals, Abbott and Costello. I would not do my homework. I would not, I would not advance myself in any way, shape, manner, or form. I was, I was a wastrel. Those are my prime television watching years, in fact. <laughs> Well, you've been on every show in existence I since I then. I haven't. I haven't. I haven't. That's the illusion of IMDb. From an actor's <laughs> perspective, most of the time we're thinking my career's finished. I'm done. I'm washed up. I can't get a job because we're not working all that much. You see the list, and then it seems more impressive than it really is. I worked a lot more in my 40s, less in my 50s. And now, some of it's ageism. Some of it's I've really devoted a lot of my life to this, the Food Coalition. I mean, I, I really, I told my agents, make me offer only for a period of time. I, I, I want to devote myself to this. I don't want to go chase anything. I want to 
commit to making this grow. So some of it was by choice. Um, but some of it is just the recognition that at a certain point, you know, I, I, I made my dough, my wife made my dough, her dough. We don't have kids. I, we live, I'm, I mean, I, I don't really have needs to speak of. I don't care about clothes and fancy cars and any, most of the bullshit that people spend their money on. I, I don't need to work. And, and candidly, as you get older, the work is a little less interesting. The parts become less interesting. Um, you're doing the umpteenth iteration of something you've done a number of times before. Occasionally, you get something really cool. But if you're old, you're also competing with a whole bunch of really great guys who've climbed a ladder. It's not like when you're younger when you can get a part because a lot of the people you're competing with aren't as good as you are. You're competing against the best these days. You still do lots of big, big shows over the last decade. You've been on pretty much everything, as as you said. Are there any roles in the last few years or maybe coming up that it was maybe a one-off of a network show, but you really got to sink your teeth into that you did enjoy? Um, No. <laughs> Not really. Um, I mean, there are some things that I, I, I enjoyed being on Masters of Sex. I, I enjoyed the, the couple of days I had as a really vile and vicious lawyer on Pam and Tommy. I'm on an Apple show coming out this fall, I think, um, about the Lincoln assassination and the hunt for Booth's killers the name of which is escaping me, but I don't have a particularly dimensional part. It's not that I haven't necessarily been on some interesting projects. It's that the the parts that I'm getting tend to be fairly um, undimensionalized. And I'm not complaining about it, believe me. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's it's not, um, I'm perfectly, I think one of the great things you have to take on in life is responsibility for your choices. I've made my choices. I chose to not at a certain point in my career when I could have been ferociously ambitious and I could have fought to climb that ladder. I said, no, and that's not really my temperament. I've done well that next level of, of hunger, which requires you to be on the road a lot more. It requires you to be in shape a lot more. It requires a lot. And I passed, you know? Do you find that, especially when you were on offer only, there must be a thing where a casting director is looking down the list and it's like, you know, jerk lawyer, get me John Billingsley. Like, is that what, do you feel like that's their (laughs) thing? That's what I was curious to find out. And the answer is no. Um, (laughs) Uh, I was not on that. That's what my hope was. I thought, okay, I'll get some offers. I'll be jerk lawyer. I'll be, you know, uh, child molester number three. I'll be whatever. And I'll I'll still work because I'm getting, I didn't get any offers. Maybe one, you know, once in a blue moon, I'll get an offer. But, you know, generally speaking, one, there are a lot of people in the stew pot. And uh, to, to get an offer means that somebody is powerful enough to say, I don't have to listen to your opinion. I'm going with this guy. That's right. not, unfortunately, the way television or, or film tends to work. Somebody's going to say, no, 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 we're not going to make an offer. We got to see him. And we got to right. see some other guys. And if there are 18,000 producers and et cetera, and et cetera, all those guys would like to make offers to their pals, too. So you have to be at, at a much higher echelon. I was pretty sure that was true. I mean, I, I, it didn't surprise me to find out that I couldn't be offer only, but I wasn't going to retire and I didn't want to resign. I just wanted to focus on helping to build an institution that I thought was really precious, really special and, and answered a need in me that I needed answered. You know, speaking of friends, I think you've done all the NCISs except for Scott's. 
How did that uh, yeah, not I, happen? Well, that's because Scott's got that restraining order out on me. So <laughs> um, I knew there was a reason. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I showed up in court. He didn't show up. I don't know how he managed to get away with keeping that in effect. I mean, <laughs> all I can do is fuck one goat. Um, <laughs> no, I didn't do Scott's show. I know that's and, and because in part um, that was during the year I was off. During those years, I was I was trying to be offer only. Well, one group that would, I think, be likely to call with all these new Star Treks and bringing back characters, which they keep doing. It seems like there's some might be some opportunities there. Hello? <laughs> Hello? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I was on the strike line and uh, some of the strange new uh, strange new worlds guys who were coming up and saying, how long do you think Tenobians live? Yes. And, and, uh, yeah, no, no. I said, oh, long, 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 <laughs> definitely long enough to be on your show if that's what you're getting at. So who knows? I mean, I would, I would happily, I would happily come back, and I figure, you know, hell, even if I'm dead, my son Flox Junior is still around, and he is the spitting image of his old pop. Yeah, Brent Spiner started that tradition. Yeah, so <laughs> there's a million yeah. songs yeah. and people. I know you, you know, you've at conventions and on our last interview joked about the old fat flocks idea but old fat flocks um but you know like when terry uh metallis you know did picard he went out to all of the actors and he he kind of they worked together on the ideas of where they were a century later or or decades later so you know putting old fat flocks aside like what what would your idea or do you even have an idea of I think he's written a, a series of very successful sex manuals uh i think <laughs> i think that's one thing that he's become like the dr ruth of uh intergalactic intergalactic space that he's maybe got his own show um <laughs> maybe a lot of cookbooks too i think you know i think what what flocks i think I, flocks was, was hedonistic he was brilliant but he was hedonistic so either he kept which is i think the star trek way he would be doing, you know, research and curing diseases and yada, 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 and, you know, guest lecturing at various medical blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. I guess there is a whole, by the way, biography of what happened to me, which I have not read. And I don't know whether that is like official canon or, but, you know, somebody sent it to me the other day. I'd like to think that he got to a point where he said, you know what? I've done a lot. It's time for me to have fun and I'm going to do some cool shit. I'd like to think he got to enjoy some of his uh, his uh, declining years with his various wives and husbands, traveling around the galaxy, going to Ryza, having a blast. The one thing I always kind of wanted was like, we should have more cocktails on the show, you know? I mean, I know the Guinan, was that how you pronounce it? Guinan. Guinan, thank you. I can always count on you, Lori. <laughs> you know? <laughs> If it was me, I'd be like, you know, what do you, what do you like to drink? Um, you know, ooh, what, I want to, I did like the fact he, he just ate everything. Those are the kinds of things, because I'm a lowbrow myself. Those are the kinds of things that would appeal to me about intergalactic travel is like, ooh, what do you eat? What do you drink? Well, eating and drinking is actually a big part of Strange New Worlds. So, but it sounds like you, you want to lean into the comedy side if you did get a chance to come back. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I Far be it for me. I mean, if they brought me back in a dramatic, uh, I'd, I'd probably be a little surprised, but I'd be fine. I mean, I I really enjoyed those episodes where I was given the opportunity to lean into the more serious shit. I'm happy to do any of it. 
it's my own my own nature that's coming out now not my uh you know my capacity as an actor is to is to bend in either direction i think it, you're, it's the most interesting of all when it gets to be both at the same time um, right is there an episode of enterprise what do you feel is the episode where you really got to be that actor that got to do both probably dear doctor early on because that had a it, it it was certainly a controversial episode insofar as, one, it was the first episode that featured me, so it's the episode where I kind of began to learn how to play the guy. Um, but it was also a slow cook episode, so for the first half of the episode, there was a lot of humor. I'm, I'm Some attractive young woman is flirting with me, and I don't know what to make of it, and it's all about the various and sundry odd mores of the crew, and do you think they would let me watch them having sex, that couple over there? Ooh, what are you eating? <laughs> So there was that, but then the second half of the episode was very fraught. I'm having to make a decision, which I would personally question, um, as to whether or not I should introduce to a dying culture a cure for their disease. I choose to withhold it because I essentially believe that they are the equivalent of the Europeans having landed in America. They're killing the Indians. And I say, you know what, I'm going to let you guys die of smallpox. You're going to kill them. I'm going to let you guys die, smallpox. That was, and rightfully so, I think, an episode that attracted a lot of um, complaint. But as an actor, that was the episode for me of all the episodes, probably. The one where the, the entire crew was knocked out, which I think was sort of a riff that they'd done before in Voyager. So, so I think some fans thought it was kind of a retread. But I had the ship to myself, and I, I ended up saving the day. That, that, too, had a nice mixture of comedy and drama. Right. I mean, an interesting thing about looking back on these shows, I mean, you know this because you've been guesting on them, but, you know, you have let's you have all these podcasts that are hosted by actors on Star Trek going through their shows and looking at them again. And right now we have Armin and Terry have joined Robbie and Garrett and they're watching Deep Space Nine together, which oh. has just been amazing to watch, really. Uh-huh. And I'm wondering if you, I mean, I know you're not a big TV guy, but if one of your other actors wanted to pair up with you, and watch, how would you feel about watching and discussing Enterprise episodes in that same way? Well, it depends. I mean, you know, because to be candid with you, I thought maybe, you know, one of every three was good. Um, <laughs> so I don't know whether or not, uh, I, I don't know whether or not there would be a great match of my sensibilities to a fan's interest in watching Enterprise with me. Well, they do, you know, they get pretty negative about the bad episodes when they're watching them. Yeah, I mean, I haven't, I will say, I hadn't watched it much. And then uh, I, I, now that it's on, I don't remember what streaming service it's on, I, I watched a few. And I can appreciate that which I can appreciate more than I did them. I think its problems had more to do with the, the nature of how we were hamstrung by a network that didn't want us to do anything you know, that we hadn't done before. And I felt badly in a way that I, I think Rick and Brandon kind of took the fall and have become in the eyes of some of the fans, kind of the, kind of the bad guys in a weird way for not having made enterprise better than they perceived it to be. I think they themselves, I know this is true for Brandon because I talked to him about it, are, are disappointed that that a show that could have been really really good maybe didn't quite achieve what it could have achieved because they didn't they weren't really given freedom. I mean, they were essentially told, I'm sure you guys know this, after Voyager left, it was like snap snap, when's the next one coming? Hurry up. 
they wanted more time. They wanted at least a year off. They wanted to develop a more comprehensive Bible. They did come up with a story that suggested the first year was going to be about getting the ship launched, and it was scuttled. So, you know, to the extent that they actually did have a sense of what they wanted to do, they had to throw it out and start from scratch. I always felt badly for them, um, you know. At one point, this is perhaps uh, apocryphal, but I love the story so much I tell it anyway. Um, Don Ostroff, who's never going to ever hire me now because I've told the story so many times. I, <laughs> I, I hope she's retired. Um, Don Ostroff, who I think was running <laughs> UPN at the time. Yeah, the third season when we were about to, you know, go off into the depths of space to attack the lizards that attacked our planet, yada, 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 suggested that on the way out there, we should stop and pick up a boy band in distress so we could try and get some, you know, some episodes that might appeal to the, the teeny boppers watching other shows on UPN, which I thought at the time was like, and there it is. There is network television in all of its glory. Do you agree with Brannon that season four should have been how it should have been from the beginning, both structurally, tonally, and the, you know, the specific, the way it tied into canon and all that stuff? Maybe, maybe. It's it's hard to say. It's hard to separate your own aesthetic out from a projection of what you think the fans' aesthetic might have been, you know, appreciative of. My my sense was that where the show could have been interesting is if it had been this. this I've you've probably heard this story a dozen times. Uh, you know, there are only so many stories a goddamn actor has, so forgive me. But this early episode where somebody comes back after they've you know transported up from the surface and their head is where their ass should be. It's like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. That was the first draft. By the time we filmed it, you know, he had a twig sticking out of his ear. I thought that crystallized what the show failed to do. To me, right. it should have been a horror show with moments of glory and triumph. On, on streaming, characters get killed off. You know, that's what I think might have been interesting is if it had really been the first ship, <laughs> you know. I mean, Brandon is a huge fan of horror. He wrote an episode of next generation where Worf ate a guy. Um, it's, you know, it is surprising <laughs> how tame. Well, that's, got. that's what I mean. That's, I think the network, I, I think that was, I think that was the network's sensibilities. You know, I don't even know if they necessarily read their own audience, but I definitely think from on high, there was a pressure to conform. It always, it seems to me like when you were turning a channel, you know, back in the day, you knew you'd landed on Star Trek in a, in a millisecond. The lighting design, the scenic design, you just knew the style was just, it was Star Trek right away. We were on a little cramped ship. We were wearing these interesting, like, you know, kind of retro suits. There was a possibility for them to break the mold all the way. For them to have, again, overlapping dialogue, to have um, sh sh clutter on the set, to have, you know, to not have it be pristine. Right. And that's the direction I would have been interested in. But that's my aesthetic. That isn't necessarily, that might have been like, you know, instead of two million, we'd have one million watching it. I think Brandon is probably more astute than I, having come from all those years of Star Trek and recognizing that season four would have been the best whack at the sweet spot of appealing to fans who wanted the original show to be more of a Valentine to what, uh, or, or if, if, if the fourth season had been our first season that Manny's perception of what we were doing was valentining, throwing back to some of what the first, the original series was, which in right. a way is what Strange New Worlds does, I guess. Speaking of the new shows, recently the showrunner from Lower Decks said he's finally figured out how to get Enterprise into season, into that show for the next season coming up. 
So uh, do you have something to tell us about that? Apparently not. I, I don't. <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm not. I, I guess whatever he's it, it, Captain Mayweather. I don't know. I, I uh, Admiral Mayweather. I, I news to me. News to me. <laughs> Um, maybe there's some great deal in the works in some back room somewhere where I'm going to appear on all the various iterations of Star Trek now, and uh, and it'll be a great victory lap in the latter part of my career. But I wouldn't bet on it. <laughs> well, they, I think they're still doing the voice work, so maybe they haven't gotten around to you yet. So yeah. maybe, maybe I know Picardo's now kind of like you know got his foot in the door in uh, Prodigy. Yes. Yeah. Everywhere <laughs> I turn, there's 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 Picardo sitting in my chair. I tell you, it's the he bushes. He keeps moving the bushes and then popping out. In I front know. Of he sent me something one day. He sent me a little like poll. He said, "Hey, John, just wanted you to know. Recent poll said I was the most popular doctor in Star Trek history, and you were the worst." Ah! Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is such a I dick know. move. I, I have never <laughs> let him live that down. As I tell him, that was a push poll conducted only within the confines of his own family, so that does not count. But. Right? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. well, you know, that's. A, I mean, that is an interesting question. You know, because I think you've done panels together and stuff. But how do you feel Flox's legacy is amongst the pantheon of Star Trek doctors? What is his? Every show has a doctor. Every show has a doctor. I adore Bob, first of all, uh, and I, I, you know, I cherish him, and he's been incredibly generous and gracious to me and to. Uh, by extension, the Hollywood Food Coalition. So we just like to make fun of each other. What What is interesting to me, and I have alluded to this in the past, is that there was never a Denobulan before. So right. I, if you get cast as a Vulcan, you know, you know the parameters. If you get cast as a Klingon, if you get cast as a... There were no parameters. I, nobody knew what the fucking, you know, a Denobulan. What's a Denobulan? So it, to me, I do take a strange... Uh, perverse pride in being you know the the measure by which all subsequent denobulans must be must be measured um that that kind of tickles me somehow i did suggest to them once that there should be they never took any of my suggestions that there should be an <laughs> abandoned ship in space and that, that we should you know tow it in and, it, and out of it pour all these denobulans they're all slobs they're all like oscar madison they eat they eat out they each out of house and home they leave their dirty underwear lying around they're copulating in the hallways it's like get the denobulans out of here and they all look like me so that you know <laughs> wherever you go in the future of star trek if you're going to cast a denobulan you got to get john billingsley they were they start did- thinking they did have a Denobulan on Prodigy. They had a, yeah. By they had himself, a, the poor they a, guy. They had a cartoon. He, he, was, he was kind of a bit of a slob, now that I think about he it. He was. He yeah. was, and his, his hair was kind of askew. <laughs> yeah, I think I think slowly. I've also called myself Dr. Phil Flocks for a number of years because it just amuses me. Um, I think I'm slowly sort of like 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 tendrils, like creepers, sort of creeping into canon and putting mm-hmm. my, like, you know, my shit stains on canon. Somehow. <laughs> it's like, I, I've often said, I, I, I want to keep calling myself the first polyamorous. I know I'm not, but I want to claim that I'm the first polyamorous character because not only do I have three wives, but they each have three husbands. And I tried to raise an eyebrow in such a fashion as to suggest that I got it on with the husbands as much as I got it on with the wives. Apparently that worked because now I'm popular in the polyamorous community. I find that when I go to conventions there, there are people who come up and they celebrate my, uh, my respect for polyamory. <laughs> I, I, like I, I mean, Flo- Flocks may be the first swinger 
Star Trek character. Yes, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) You could totally see him. That's what I mean. Flocks in retirement to me is he's kind of wearing a leisure suit. He's eating canopies, you know, he's trying fancy cocktails. He's writing a sex manual. He's listening to the hi-fi. He's like, you know, he's like Hugh Hefner if Hugh Hefner actually had advanced attitudes towards gender. Right. <laughs> what is a fu- what is the future version of a key party? What would yeah. you throw in the bowl? <laughs> also, as far as I know, it was the only guy who got to come to work in his pajamas. Which <laughs> is another thing about the Denobulans. It's like they resisted. It's like, no, we're going to wear our pajamas. I, I, don't, I don't care what you say. I don't care what you do. We're wearing our pajamas. We'll go to Earth. We'll join your intergalactic medical program. But we're wearing our fucking pajamas, which I adore about them. It's why when I conduct Trek Talks, I don't wear pants. It's a throwback. Homage. <laughs> the last time we had you on this podcast was during the strike. And, yes. um And you were supporting uh, – it was right before the day that shall not be named or should not be named. We, we can name it uh, now. We can name it now. <laughs> yes. Yes, we, we wanted uh, Jonathan DeLarco and I and uh, – Michelle Hurd and um oh I can't remember her Natalia. name Natalia who's not in Star Trek but is a magnificent human being. Well it was a, it was a great day. I remember talking to you there. We both went and picketed it actually, right? Right. We- Lori was in New York, I was in LA. <laughs> so I know the deal like it it certainly wasn't like the WGA deal which had like 90 something percent. The SAG deal had something like 70 something percent. 78%, I think. Yeah, so how do you feel it all worked out? Do you feel like he, the, the the actors did get a good deal in the end? Yeah, on balance. I mean, you know, here's the thing that I think is really important, and Armin Shimmerman has addressed this. The pattern bargaining has been the bane of our existence for years and years and years. The way they've lined it up is every three years, the director's contract comes up first, and the writer's contract, and then our contract. The directors, the first and second ADs, they don't participate in a residual structure, so they're willing to take a deal where residuals aren't that important. Then the writers come up, and basically the MPTP turns around and says, well, you know, we've got this template now we've created with the directors, so let's work within the confines of that template. And the writers get a deal. And then it comes to us, and it's basically take it or leave it. Here's the deal. For all the pain of that strike, And for all the questions people might have about whether we did or did not achieve enough on any individual front, be it AI or pension or health or wages or, you know, streaming, we broke the concept of pattern bargaining. They had to negotiate with the directors, then they had to negotiate with the writers, and then they had to negotiate with the actors. And all of us had different needs, different issues, and all of us were willing to say, just because you arrived at X with the writers does not mean you can force it on us. Their AI ain't our AI. Their residuals ain't our residuals. Going forward, that means the next contract, which will come up before you know it, we get to again say no more pattern bargaining. And I think that is the most significant achievement of the strike. Um, AI, you know, I mean, it, the there are people, you know, Justine Bateman, who I respect. I, certainly she's infinitely more cognizant and aware of what the threats are of AI than I am. But, you know... As much as one bends toward Ludditism, God knows I do, you know, you aren't going to stand in the way of the automobile and say, the horse, the horse. You have to figure out how to make compacts and deals that you can then hopefully improve. And I do think that we made progress on the AI front. I think we have come a ways uh, forward from where we were in terms of preventing them from using artist likenesses without permission. We have 
our toe in the streaming water. That's probably where I'm the most concerned. To me, the need to have more accountability for what it is that uh, makes money and what doesn't make money on streaming services. I would have wanted us to achieve more, but you know, we were out for six months. If we'd said we ain't coming back until that gets settled, I think we would have been out for possibly another five. And I don't know that you know, the city could have afforded it. Now, in terms of just going back to AI for a second, I mean, how would you feel personally if you got a call that was like, listen, we're going to pay you, but we've scanned, we have a scan and we're going to use an AI version of you if we pay you? How do you feel about that? Well, one, I can say no, which is the point. I mean, that's the point. It's, it's my choice now. Um, I, I have a voice. It's better than, than me finding out that they went ahead and used my likeness without my permission. And depending upon who you listen to, they would say that that was never a threat, but our, our union would have held that there were so many loopholes that allowed them to do just that, that we needed to plug those loopholes. Our union would say that that was what we did. Whether or not the money we are being offered is commensurate with what we are giving away, whether or not it is a good thing or a bad thing for them to be able to technologically achieve that, those are two separate questions. I think if you looked at the latter question, is it a good thing or a bad thing for them to be able to cast me in a future iteration of Star Trek just using all the digital imagery they had if I'm willing to take the money? That is a hard question to answer. And I think it's outside of the purview to a certain extent of what our union could have fought for. I feel like that is inevitable and it's kind of already happened in a few places. Justine Bateman's argument, as I understand it, was basically stand in the path and say, no, do not allow that to happen. I I don't know that you could have done that any more than you could say, okay, guys, you're not allowed to use digital effects. You know, you, you have to actually use human just human beings. You're not allowed to use green screen anymore. You're not allowed to use the tools that are available to you to make your movies anymore because you're screwing actors in the process. I just think that was not, that did not seem like a credible argument to me. So you will be happy. Let's say 20 years from now, you get the call and they're like, you know what? We listened to the soul podcast. We love your pitch. We've created a digital version and it's the crazy flocks you wanted. He's a sex addict and he's written these books and we're just good, you know, and here's a check and, you know, will you be happy? Will you like, great, love it. Uh, you know, I, again, I would have a choice. I, I guess, you know, my happiness would be contingent upon the size of the check. And, and you know, <laughs> I mean, and that is the reality is, you know, this is the thing that I will always come back to is 85 or whatever percent of the union makes under, you know, Fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars a year. Most people who are in this business aren't doing terribly well, and so for me, the real gains one is our our you know wages took a big bump up, uh, pension went up, and healthcare contributions went up. That's kind of meat and potato stuff. Um, it went up a hell of a lot more than it would have gone up if we hadn't struck. Um, right. was, it, was it worth the pain? Was it worth the sacrifice? Well, you know, I mean, historically, the union movement. There's a reason we have things like time and a half. There's a reason we have eight-hour days. There's a reason we don't work on the weekends. There's a reason we have all the shit. And it's because at various points in time in the history of labor unions, people said, yeah, it's worth it. It's worth winning this small fight because that's the next brick in the wall. I think you know we've, we've just taken up so much of your time, John. And you've got a big 
event to plan and meals to serve. So uh, as um, I said, this is my, you know, I'll just stand gab for, you know, I think it's, it's <laughs> your patience that is being tried by me, but I appreciate your willingness to chat. No, for us, it's great. And plus, I'm so excited to be plugging Track Talks and to be working on it because I think it's going to be an amazing event. That's the thing. I wish I wish I had time to talk about every one of the 150 groups we work with because each of them do such cool fucking things. And I just I'm so appreciative and admirous of the things that people in our community do in their own unique and interesting ways to be a part of that, to have plugged into that through the mechanism of providing food to help their programs flourish. Um, as much as I love our nightly meal program and as much as I admire it and as much as it is the heart and soul of our organization, the nature of the metastasization of service through this kind of sharing is for some reason just you know deeply significant to me. As co-host of Trek Talks, which goes on for hours, literally, and you play a – they kind of – Jerry I Lewis. All that time for anybody who's listening, that's thinking, Almighty, I don't want to hear him but you anymore. Do, but you do pop in and out, in and, and out. so people oh. will get, you know, people will get some of these stories, and they will certainly learn more about the great work and the the connections that you're talking about. We'll show this. As, as we have in the past, four or five interstitial videos. We have a lot of videos available on YouTube for those people who want to do a deep dive into us. Interviews with our employees and our volunteers and partners, interviews with uh, our executive director, and videos that go back a number of years that show the evolution of our programs. We pick from amongst that um, roster. So we'll show about four or five interstitial, we call them, in between the panel's uh, episodes, videos, uh, to give you a flavor of what we do and how we do it. Have you picked your wardrobe for the event? I mean, like, Jerry was famous. He started in the tux. By the end, it was a wreck. You know, I, I, <laughs> um, I only have to decide whether I'm going to wear pants. I feel like I've established <laughs> there's a good chance I'm not going to wear pants. I, I, I This is what I'm really waiting my, for my executive director to kind of say, John, you know, we give you a lot of latitude, but, you know, we, we really would not have you lead with this concept of the pants free convention anymore. <laughs> I'm I'm intentionally not answering my phone for fear that phone call is going to come. We had something for a while. My wife started when uh, we were a little wilder and woollier when we were rescuing food from TV studios because both my wife and I for years looked at all this waste, this amazing food that was just chucked. We'd finish the meal and you'd see them swoop in the, the folks who were serving the meal and just take these vats of great food and dump it into the garbage. And it was just, it always broke our hearts. So we started rescuing food initially for our own meal program and then to share with other organizations. And we called ourselves the pickup artists. And at one point our, um, I can't remember, probably our development director or ID said, you're going to have to change the name. We're like, no, <laughs> come on. I don't want to grow up, but like the pickup artists, come on. Fine. We don't do it anymore. And we, we came up with the exchange, but that was great. That was one of the highlights. My wife was, my wife is a, by the way, I should just talk about her the whole time because uh, Bonita, Bonita, Bonnie Friderisi, she on the ground, I just sit at a computer and say, hey, you know what we should do? And then Bonnie goes out and actually does it. So she runs the pickup artist program. She actually kind of started the exchange. She runs this wonderful Sunday sack lunch initiative. We send 3,000 amazing high-end multi-element lunch bags all over the city. She's uh, 
I got very, uh, I got, I, I married up. That's all I can say. <laughs> well done. Yeah. Well, on, on that I note, I, guess... and I didn't let you. So now I'm going to let you, I'll let you, I'll let you get No, rid- no, no. Wait, look, John, I'm not trying to get rid of you. Um, <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. It's <laughs> I mean, I'll be talking to you tomorrow again. So yeah, I know. Exactly. <laughs> but, uh, I you know, very much appreciate it. Can't wait for Trek Talks three and we'll keep on bringing you on the podcast to talk about whatever the hell you want to talk about I will have yeah, to, anytime. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna start making i have to make i have to make up some star trek stories i realize it's like i gotta <laughs> i gotta make up some shit that time that jolene came into my my trailer and with all the cockroaches and she oh my because <laughs> i'm I, people are sick of my stories i've been telling them for 20 goddamn years why did you suddenly sound like Jimmy Stewart, by the way? That's... Mary, Mary, Mary. Because it's Christmas time and I just watched It's a Wonderful Life. Me too. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, it is a wonderful life. And on that note, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Thanks, John. I'll talk to you soon, Lori. Thank you, Tony. Well, that was a great, honest chat with John Billingsley. We could have gone on longer and longer, obviously. He seems to... <laughs> want to keep talking he's a talker and so are we so (laughs) we could have we definitely could have kept it going well i'm sure we'll we'll have him back i mean we've talked about enterprise and with him on other occasions but we you know he still had some new interesting things to say about the show i i find it interesting that his favorite episode as the doctor was from season one you know so he yeah it it is interesting to look at his career since Enterprise as well. Yeah, I was kind of surprised. I he basically said he really hasn't had any roles, basically that he's been able to stick his teeth into. He does so many guest spots where he's in one episode or maybe a couple. I mean, he's yeah. had a few shows that he's been on longer, but he's had some where he has one one episode, two episodes. I mean, he's been on so many of the shows I watch. He just pops up in. I'm like, oh. There he is on Gilmore Girls. Oh, there he is on Criminal Minds. Oh, you know, whatever it is. But it, that's a tough way to make a living. It is. Yet he, he quite the arc. In fact, it was quite the hedonistic arc. Speaking of hedonistic flocks on True Blood. Yes. If you ever watched that vampire show. Well, because the, the last time I interviewed him bef- last year, I guess, for Trek Talks, we had him on. And I, and I remember him talking, like describing about him coming home from work and telling his wife, Bonnie, like the sorts of activities he'd taken place. <laughs> and if I can paraphrase, it's going to be a little rough, but I think he talked about taking it up the ass from a stevedore. <laughs> As one does. You don't forget a phrase like that. <laughs> no. I don't think his jaunty... Strange New World flocks would be that raunchy. No. <laughs> Jaunty's a good word, though. Even if it's the doctor. I love the, the, the Dr. Ruth of the 23rd century. With the You know, he has his own talk show, I guess. I love that. Giving people sex advice. I think it's great. Yeah, I think him showing up on Strange New Worlds in a, in a comedic role could work. Um, I mean, they've done some interesting stuff on that show. The, the season five thing about... Lower decks, even though he hadn't heard anything, Mike said he's still trying to work some things out. So it's quite possible that, you know, they have yet to reach out to actors because that's because they're still recording, I think. 
So we'll right. You know. And honestly, if you look at lower decks and you think about who from Enterprise would be great there, he does seem like a great first choice. Well, not only that, if they had re- – because, you know, the, these guys know each other. I think he would have heard something if Dominic or – Yes, right, yeah. And so if if the word was out that Lower Decks was reaching out to some Enterprise actors, he probably would have heard it. Well, we'll find out when Season 5 comes on to Paramount Plus next year, I guess. Right, yep. All right, well, that's it for the year, folks. That's All Access Star Trek 2023 coming to a close. So, Happy New Year. We will see you next week. We'll probably be recapping some of the best and worst of 2023 and what we're looking forward to in 2024. We'll see you then.